Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders and clinicians who are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself called PopDoc, which aims to let anyone with a smartphone test themselves for major diseases. I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Hello to everyone that's listening to this live. Thanks for tuning in. Um, right now, but also hello if you're listening on demand or on one of our new platforms. Health Tech Hour is now available on Spotify, Apple, and Audible to download all of the all of the previous episodes. This episode will be going out in a few days' time. Just search for Health Tech Hour. Make sure you get us. You make sure you get us. Though there are other uh, health tech shows out there, but none is as large as ours, and none is being broadcast live through the UK's largest. Um, health talk radio. Um, the, the best way is just to look for my smiling face in the um, in the podcast town and you can find us. Also, make sure to check out our website, which we just launched, which is healthtechhour.co.uk. All of the shows are up there as well. Please also send us a message. If you have a suggestion for a show guest, if you have any feedback on any of the shows, do you want us to do a show on a particular area? Do you want to recommend someone or do you want one of our guests to come back on? We'd love to hear from you. We really like all of the comments and feedback from from our listeners and we thank everybody for listening. Um, And and finally, the last bit of business before we can get into today's show. As always, please follow the show um, on Twitter, which is at Health Tech Hour. Follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio. And you can also follow me, which is at Steve Roost CEO. So um, also, before we go into it and introduce today's guest, I'd like to say a huge get well to Raffaella. Raffaella is the beating heart of UK Health Radio and everyone from the Health Tech Hour team wishes her a speedy recovery. So on to today's show, we're returning to the world of diagnostics. In effect, it's most basic. How do you tell if you have a health problem before, during or after you have any symptoms? So um, the company today that we're talking to is actually at the forefront of combining digital platforms, AI and the best of lab diagnostics to help the NHS and other healthcare organizations diagnose diseases, specifically cancer, more quickly and earlier. Um, and we all know that earlier diagnosis means better outcomes. The company is called Cited, C-Y-T-E-D, uh, founded by our guest, Dr. Marcus Gerung, in conjunction with Cancer Research UK. Like our company, PocDoc, Cited are based in Cambridge and are one of the fastest growing health tech companies in the UK at the moment. Marcus and I have known each other for a while, so there should be a good show. There's definitely a lot to get through. So Marcus, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Sorry, I also realise it's Marcel, not Marcus. Apologies. It's a good start. No worries, no worries, Steve. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Good. Whereabouts are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Cambridge today. Good. At the labs? Uh, no action up at the labs. Um, going to um, Arab Health next week um, as a conference. So making sure to stay COVID safe in the in the days up to that as well. So not in the office okay. today, even though um, our guys at the lab are, are, are busy as ever, basically. 
Good. So um, as regular listeners know, we do the show in three parts. The first is really kind of an origins part as to, um, you know, how you came to be doing all of the world changing things that you're doing. The second part is all of the stuff that you're currently doing with Sighted to change the world. And then the final part is really around what keeps you on your mission and how do you feel? How do you kind of stay motivated and get out of bed every day to stay in the fight? So let's go back. And, and at what point did you sort of decide to focus on uh, a scientific pathway in, in your life? Like at what point did you make that decision? Yeah, it's actually a, it's a very interesting point to start with, Steve, because um, I think from my, from my teenage years, I always was quite interested in... But probably even before my teenage years, I was always, you know, very interested in any type of scientific question. I was famous for running around um, in front of my grandparents and like showing them books about anatomy, about which I had no idea what's in there, basically. Okay. So many years, many years before being able to actually comprehend what probably science means, I was excited about illustrations of these types of books and what the little lines meant that were were drawn next to organs. But then, um, as I went through school, um, I had a bit of a decision to make, I would say, after finishing school, because I was always very, very technically interested as well. I sort of am a self-taught programmer from my teenage years as well. But at the time, I really had to, I felt like I was put in front of a decision of either going down a route where I'm studying computer science or I'm going down a route or path where I'm going to the field of natural science, basically. I then ended up doing both things in a slightly weird way. So I um, I set up a software consultancy firm in, in Germany after finishing school, which I which I did full-time for a year, but then started studying in parallel, which was um, a study program called Nanoscience, which was sort of like in between the world of chemistry, biology, and physics. And that was sort of the first hook what got into science. And what was it particularly that ended up, what, what, why did you feel like there was a lot of crossover between those two fields? Or did you feel, did you feel at the time? So I think it's really interesting and it also plays very nicely into how you've executed with, with Cited, right? Like that interplay between um, more, more not uh, computer science, I was going to say traditional computer science, which is a bit of a, I don't know, oxymoron but computer science and and the natural sciences at the time did you did you recognize crossover or did you think that they were two kind of separate things there were definitely two separate things for me at the time like i did not have the i did not have the perspective to see how over the decade which then basically followed i followed i would be able to merge the two together it was really it, it was worlds apart from one another as well the, the work we did at software consultancy firm was very small you know, development projects, digital transformation projects for SMEs unrelated to healthcare. Um, and obviously, you know, academia and, and science is, a, is a, in a completely different corner for that. So it took me, I would say, close to three or f- close to four or five years or so to actually understand how I can bring the two of them together to then potentially develop a career at the intersection of, you know, more general natural science and 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 what is enabled by technology and as you just called it you know, mod- modern or traditional computer science yeah, no, it's a, it's a, call it. yeah exactly it's like yeah kind of uh, this is a strange way to think about it so when you were doing your academic studies w- was there a moment where obviously i'm guessing at the beginning it started off being more general and then at some point you sort of chose a pathway to move down how, how did you pick that pathway and what what was it yeah th- there was a there's an interesting anecdote in this as well because i um I, I did my undergrad in Tübingen, which is in the southwest of Germany. I, and I've been I've been to Tübingen. I know oh, have Tübingen. you? Yeah, oh, long time back. Yes, long it's it's a, it's a great it's a great place to study as well. I mean, to to our UK listeners, you know, it's 
Tübingen and in Heidelberg, you could almost like see them as a bit of parallels in terms of, you know, to Cambridge yep. and Oxford as well. They're very, very university focused, focused cities as well. Architecture yep. is not as nice as here, but. You know. Well, you know, they're, they're very beautiful towns and they're, they're good fun as a student. Indeed. Yeah. And um, I had an interesting sort of like moment in my undergrad to come back to your question, Steve, which was in Germany, as you guys know, you know, certain things are slightly you know we're, we're bureaucratic and regimented about certain things you know come um, on yes i don't are, i don't believe it yes in, in some areas we are i give you a great example for that so when i try to when i i came from a very broad uh, undergraduate program which did not really specialize in any specific area basically but i wanted i insisted on doing a master's program which was in medical technologies and mm-hmm. i really had to i had to like choose and pick certain modules in a way in certain lectures that I could convince the people that were running that master's program that someone who does not have a specific medical technologies bachelor would be able to cross over into that area as well wow. and I, I I you know I went out of my way to go to immunology lectures to go to clinical uh, anatomy lectures as well just to get these extra credit credits on my transcript basically that I can convince these people to let me into the program and I think I was so incessant like for for six months uh, in the lead up to the admissions process that I always asked is there something else you guys would like me to you know have done which shows that I'm whatever motivated enough or interested enough and and I mean eventually it worked but that point was important because that actually was my hook to get into healthcare because otherwise, you know, you're somewhere between chemistry, physics, and biology, and you're not really in any applied area. And did, and, and, and did you consciously know that or think that at the time? Was this like a this was this a step in a plan, or was this just sort of a okay, yeah? You think it, it was? I think it was a step into it was a step in the plan, probably halfway through my undergrad degree. I mean, I, I you know, I walked into I walked into university and into um, into this world with you know, with a healthy level of naivety there as well. You know, you you don't really know yet how you end up in a certain field if you if you haven't really, you know, been exposed to to any any specific one. So it was yeah. it was halfway through that I really realized, okay, if I really want to if I really want to end up in healthcare, I have to make an effort to actually, you know, guide the rails in that direction. And why did you want to end up in healthcare? And like how did you decide that? Was there an inspiration or was there a moment or was it just sort of, a, it just developed or evolved? Um, interestingly, there is a, there, I think there was an impulse in my early teenage years as well, um, which I have no problem with sharing with also to a wider audience because I was, I was born with a, with a like small congenital heart defect, which was fixed when okay. I was a teenager. So everything is perfectly fine today and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy and, and everything is perfect. But at the time, um, I I think I was confronted with, with with an unusual health problem very early on in my life, basically. Mm-hmm. And that made me think quite a lot about the space. And I think like a lot of people that have been in similar area, similar areas, it's not it's not so much about the giving back into the system, but it's more like somewhere inside myself, some some switch has been flipped, basically. And there's mm-hmm. this it's one of these areas where I, you know which you and I have done in the past in other, in other, in other discussions as well. We, we, I can talk about this for, for days and days and days and yeah. days, various topics yeah. in healthcare. Yeah. I think it's really interesting about, you know, cause again, we've had a few people that have followed a similar path to yourself on the show where they, they originally started in what you could class as an academic pathway or on an academic pathway. And that could have continued, you know, forever. Right. I mean, 
the, the academic pathways are very good at providing employment over a long period of time, you know, in a relatively static, stable manner. Um, yeah. But for different reasons, they've, well, for different, I would say for different individual reasons or different individual motivations, they've chosen to move out and pursue a more entrepreneurial um, approach. But they all, generally speaking, seem to have a coalesce around um, some sort of uh, event either happening to themselves or to a family yeah. member or to someone close to them that 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 was was a health issue in some way shape or form um, and some are very tragic and some are slightly less tragic and you know that but that's all there, there always seems to be some sort of um, intervention uh, where yeah, that, yeah. that jolts them out of academia into wanting to deliver something dare I say slightly more practical tangible you know in the world yeah yeah I, I think I mean, I, I spent quite a bit of time towards the beginning and 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 halfway through my through my PhD here in the UK to 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 understand where I sit on that spectrum because I think you know when I when I finished my masters as well in Germany and I came to the UK I I had a bit of a you know I made myself a bit of a promise because I said okay I'm going to leave that software consultancy firm in Germany you know that that got all wrapped up and then the next question for me was okay, am I committing the next few years to academia now? You know, do I, do I want that? You know, I, I always knew that I want to do a PhD, you know, because I, I do have a, you know, I, I, I would say half a scientific heart beating in my chest somewhere and probably half an yeah. entrepreneurial heart beating in my chest. Yeah. Um, but I, I, felt like, I felt like that part of my life wasn't, wasn't satisfied enough. And even if I reflect on it now, you know, I, you know, I mean, what we're doing at Cited, you know, I love that and, and we're going to continue that, you know, all the way to the end to make the maximum impact we can, we can have. But if I, if I contrast that, you know, if my alternative would have been to do a postdoc and to say in academia, I also I see the attraction of that as well. You know, yes, you could now argue, you know, what's the dark side, what's the bright side, which is always a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone does. Yeah, exactly. But um but yeah, I, you can make arguments for both actually, um, in, in either way. But it's it's, I mean, I I, I think I, I got I got into heated debates over my uh, university education with with different supervisors as well, um, because like you know asking yeah, I, I asked a lot of questions because you know from from my own health problems in my teenage years as well, I was just got used to asking a lot of questions and also sometimes mm -hmm. questions which. Um, is, is sort of uh, you know we all know that the sorts of questions everyone might think they should be asked but then there's one silly person and in some cases that was me who actually asked that question and mm -hmm. then obviously you get the headwind from whoever is being asked that question <laughs> as well yeah. um but it, probably the combination of the, of these two things um you know has brought me to well has brought me to you know, taking what i've done in my phd and then and then thinking okay ca can we answer can I answer my personal so what question with that almost? Yeah, like the question of, well, I, is that the question where it's sort of, I've done all of this, in, I've done all of this research, I've, I've, I've written this paper and thesis. Yeah. So what? Like, who cares and how does that matter? Pretty, you're, you're yeah, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head there. It's, it's, yeah, it's really my personal so what question in terms of how, you know, I could continue doing the same thing now or same or similar thing in, in an academic context and you know i it, it's i've worked with some some great people um here here in cambridge as well and it's you know i have 
I have a lot of respect for people to to decide for that career path as well because it comes with its own grind and it comes with its own difficulties as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so so does the other side in a in a in a slightly different fashion. But I I could have seen myself in both in both paths, and I would never rule out to actually um, you know get a bit closer to to academia at some point in my life as well, either through teaching or through getting involved in some more research again. And we've all seen it, um, you know, particularly here in the Cambridge ecosystem, but also just wider in the scientific entrepreneur space. There's lots of people that, you know, are able to unite both worlds together. Well, and, and, I, and I think within health tech, you know, you've got a spectrum from, you know, like when on like on the show, I think we're a pretty good rep- reasonable representation of the spectrum where on the one end you have, I would say, you know, extremely technical businesses involved with for, you know, gene editing that, that have a hugely high dependence upon innovative, grounded, rigorous research, you know, and, and a highly technical implementation. And then on the other end, you have stuff that is less academic, you know, but still has some benefit from, from academic research. You know, for example, a mental health app, for, for example, that may not necessarily require the same level of academic rigor, you know, and, and, you know, large scale research laboratories, but there, there will still, there is still research that will benefit the implementation of, of, of that, of that business and help, you know, a mental health app that doesn't rely on any evidence and research is probably not as good as one that does. Yeah. How, how has that been for yourself, actually, um, that journey? Because, I mean, what you're doing with PocDoc as well, you, you can, you can make a lot of crossovers back into digital health research that is going on right now, particularly, obviously, you know, with, what we've seen in digital health developments over the last two years. Where, where, how has it been for you that journey, sort of like uniting yeah. these two worlds, which obviously live very close to one another? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, my background was and is is commercial, you know, venture back VC back tech, for, you know, helping that scale globally. My, my, but but obviously, my co-founders and the people that we've hired, we spent a lot of time building up either people that were academics and have moved over full-time or who have recently left academia after a PhD or people that have had that and worked in industry for a while. Because the reason for that is, if this is our opinion, is that our, we're, we're not just building an app, you know, we're not just software developers, we're building a medical device, we're medical device developers. And, 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 and that means you're in a highly regulated space. But more than that, you're trying to build, ultimately we're building what we're building because we believe in um, democratizing access to, to blood testing. We think that there's a major opportunity here to help people be able to test themselves, whether it's for cardiovascular disease or polio or whatever it happens to be through a smartphone or with a tablet outside of the surgery. And if you can see what's happening in the current you know, UK primary care space, they're desperate for solutions that mean that people don't have to go to GPs. You know, routine blood test is not happening. So, um, however, so, 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 but however, in order to get to that point in order to deliver a product that is accurate and safe um you, the right way to do that is to embed uh, a culture of scientific rigor into your organization scientific rigor in my opinion you know sample of one is embedded via an academic pathway up to a certain point and then people will stay in academia or they'll kind of move move out and maybe they'll go back in again and things like that but um it's very hard to undertake any kind of scientific research uh, in a company or anywhere unless the individuals that you have working with you and working for you have already been trained via undergrad, master's, PhD in that way of thinking. Now, 
I think if they stay too long in that way of thinking, it makes it harder to, to move out. Um, you know, but our founding team has something like 30 years plus of, of, of experience in um, in academia and in the, the areas that we're working in. And, you know, we have everyone in our, our research laboratory similarly has, has had a very strong academic background. I think the the interesting thing that we've tried to overlay is that I'm guessing it might be similar with, with Cited is that this is not an academic pursuit. You know, we have we have a company and we are trying to achieve certain goals and certain objectives. So there is an end point that we're trying to reach. There are objectives we're trying to hit. We're not just researching for the sake of researching, which is, you know, sometimes a bit of a culture change um, for, for, for people, particularly if they've come directly straight out of their PhD. But ultimately, um, I think it's the for, for me, it's, it's, it's what we talked about earlier. It's about how can you get the best out of both mentalities? You know, and the, which is one, the scientific rigor and the the ability to because ultimately coming up with an idea that you can't prove works is pointless. It's not going to go anywhere, particularly yes. not in a regulated space when you're talking about medical devices. It like you know, the, 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 like a good example is Theranos, right? Not a bad idea on paper theoretically, but they couldn't do any of the scientific rigor, and and that's actually a really good example with Elizabeth Holmes. She left. She she dropped out at undergrad. Right. She dropped out at, at 19. Right. So she didn't she did, have yes. she, she didn't go through. She didn't have to. She didn't learn any of that scientific rigorous research process at all, um, which actually I think is really, really valuable. And it would be very, very hard. I, I don't think that we could be doing. I don't think we would be able to do our company the way we are without people who had been been through that. I, I don't think it would be possible. Yeah, I mean, and in light of recent events, obviously, it it's whether that was the reason or something else was the reason, obviously. Uh, broke her neck in the end you know yeah i mean look and again with her it was like it wasn't a bad idea on paper exactly but but very much on paper and then there was no actual work being done seemingly to actually bring that to life and it was it was because they i don't believe that they had enough people in the organization particularly from the top down um that had already had exposure to how you do scientific research you cannot launch medical devices without there being a body of evidence that that shows that they work that shows that they're safe and that is absolutely correct in my opinion yes yeah um on that note we're going to break for two minutes of commercials and then we're going to come back because i want to understand how your or what the mission of cited is and kind of how you transition into that and understanding or at least explaining to the listeners all of the amazing stuff that you're doing with cited because you've been on a, a heck of a journey for the last two years so we will be back in two minutes with Marcel Gerung um, from Cited uh, and carry on the health tech house. So we'll, we'll speak to you in a couple of minutes. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. 
To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Hour with myself, Steve Roost, and Marcel Gerung, the CEO and founder of Cited, um, which is one of the UK's most exciting and fastest growing diagnostics companies. So, Marcel, how did you, before the break, we were talking a little bit about your, your educated process and your PhD, and then you moved from there into, into Cited. So let's just, for just quickly, that transitional period. What, when did you make that decision and what prompted you to make that decision to then go, hold up a second, I'm going to turn this into a business? And did you have, was there a, did you, because I know that you began the business somewhat in conjunction or supported by Cancer Research UK, which is an unbelievable stamp of approval to get. Um, and so what was that transition like? And then we can go straight into what the cited mission is and, and, and all the exciting things that you're doing, which are, which are fantastic and very, very impressive. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, I think. When I started my PhD, and this this you know uh, follows on from from what we just talked about before the break as well, I I joined a team um, you know working on machine learning and artificial intelligence applications on on medical imaging data, and got connected to like the wider ecosystem here in Cambridge here in Cambridge quite quickly. And through that connection um, from my PhD supervisor initially, actually I met two co- I met the people that were then becoming the co-founders of Cited eventually. And the interesting thing there was that I actually started my PhD in, um, in, in early 2018. And interestingly, we had the idea for Cited very, very early on, but we knew that, you know, with the lack of ownership of me being in the very early stages of my PhD, not a lot is going to happen until actually I will have the bandwidth to really dedicate um, myself full-time to the company. So it was really in the very early stages of my PhD when the company already then was incorporated, basically, where we started to develop what the strategy and what the plan for the company might be and what the platform is we're going to build. And it was very much a combination from my background on you know, working in machine learning on medical imaging data, together with the two clinical co-founders as well, who are both working um, in the early detection space. One of them is professor for cancer prevention here in Cambridge as well. And the other one is a, is a, is a world-renowned pathologist um, for, for upper GI, so gastrointestinal, stomach, esophagus, or esophageal diseases, basically. And it was very much just weird. You know, it wasn't weird at the time, but if you look back and if you talk about it, it's slightly weird. You know, it was this asymmetric sort of like connection of like a clinician and a professor and a PhD student in their first year, basically, that, that yeah. sort of said, yeah, we can do something here. We probably just have to sit it out for a bit more until, you know, one of us, you know, looking at me here. Um, yeah, will have looking it, at will the have young it. guy with the energy. Being like, exactly. let's, off, let's offload it to this guy. <laughs> you, you, well, yeah. yeah in um, a, I mean, obviously, that's not what happened. I, I, no, 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 exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but, but effectively, you know, it took, yeah, it, it was that sequence of events, basically, which then... Um, also led me to getting a much more, and there was weird synergies there as well. I got a much more refined PhD question as a result of these conversations because we knew mm-hmm. exactly, okay, the company is mostly going to do this. 
So adjacent to this field, which is not, ex we're doing parts of that in the company, but not, not anything, none of the things I specifically did in my PhD. Um, it just really helped to refine what my PhD will be about as well, because it was almost a prequel to the company. And, yeah. I and, think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So it was a highly practical PhD question as opposed it to... Was a it was a highly practical PhD question, which just by asking a lot of questions in the first six months, I was able to tie down really, really quickly, which also enabled me to then go through that PhD very, very quickly. So I think it took just over two years and, and, a, and, a, and a few months, basically, to, 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 to wrap it up, which was not really, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't rushed, interestingly. You know, it was... It was just very clear early on to everyone who was involved that this is this is the deliverable, which then naturally segues into what comes next. So even the transition from you know us raising the first first round of capital in late 2019 to closing that in early 2020, and then me phasing out of my PhD and phasing into the company and building the organization again, you know, sounds a bit crazy if you take it out of context. But within the wider you know within my wider background, it was a completely natural natural development and a natural curve so how would you describe cited's mission and why it matters so one of the things and i'm picking up on what you said when you introduced me as well is one of the things that is very much at the core of our mission is is offering the best possible diagnostic testing to patients to diagnose disease earlier and faster and one of the things we've really set ourselves um up for in the beginning is you know, really, really starting with a very specific and obviously global problem, which is cancer and, and more widely oncology, basically. So what are the pathways for patients in oncology, in cancer diagnosis that are currently underserved, where we have massive unmet needs as well? And how can a company like us, which is combining two interesting worlds with one another, one of them is technology development, but the other one is actually clinical diagnostics and, you know, clinical diagnosis on the ground how can we combine those two things together and and stop and stop looking at them at silos as well but then mm -hmm. merging the two things together in a closed loop to then either develop new diagnostic tests which improve cancer pathways or improve existing tests which then enable patients to get on the right treatment earlier or faster than what currently the standard of care looks like so let's just take it back a step i'm sure everyone listening understands the value of early detection but just Within cancer, I know cancer is a very broad subject, but why is early detection such an important factor in cancer? Great, great question, Steve. One of the big problems we see in cancer is all of these horrible stories you hear about loved ones or, or friends, basically, is that a patient you know, has a lump or a patient has a weird, uncomfortable feeling for a long period of time. They go and see their GP. GP might have a suspicion already, sends these people to secondary care to a hospital. They get, for example, a tissue sample taken out or some imaging being done in an MRI or in a CT or in an X-ray machine. And what you find is, you know, stage three, stage four, advanced cancer, barely treatable, mm -hmm. prognosis, very poor. You know, prognosis, yeah. we're looking at a few years to live, basically, hopefully with a reasonable quality of life unfortunately for cancers like esophageal cancer or brain cancer usually with awful quality of life because even what you're trying to do to keep these patients alive is, is, is harsh you know yeah. you need to really you need to reject large pieces of, of tissue from, from the human body which is just something which a human doesn't respond to very well mm. and 
early detection is, you know, if we think about this as, you know, diagnosing someone at stage three and four, then this patient must have had stage one or two or even an earlier stage at some point in their life as well. So the question is, how can we change that paradigm from people presenting to the healthcare system with an advanced disease? How can we change it over to finding these people when it matters and when we can still stop them from progressing to these later stages? At some point in life, that that is the fundamental approach early detection. And with, I know again, generalizations is is not necessarily the best way to look at these things. But but just for the purposes of, of the show, are, are what are the reasons that people are not being diagnosed earlier, and and how is cited addressing that those issues? So, as I said, you know, how many of us, if they if they feel a bit weird for a few days or for a prolonged period of time, not everyone goes to see their GP. You know, not mm-hmm. everyone enters the healthcare system. Well, and also these days, it's not as easy to see our GPs and it's, as, and it's, as, and it's, as, as it was. Correctly, which which is a problem we will have to live with for the rest of this decade. And, you know, it will impact, it will impact public health in the UK and in other countries for the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, one thing is access, but the other one is what technology do we have we can offer these patients without making it arduous or un- very uncomfortable for these patients to be subjected to a procedure that, for example, helps them to be diagnosed if they're within an at-risk population. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's take an example, because this is really where we specifically started and where a lot of our growth came from as well. We have been looking at esophageal cancer, so cancer of the food pipe, you know, okay. so the part in your, in the part in your body, which is above your stomach. And this is one of the, it's one of the most lethal cancers actually in, 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 the, in the world. And it's something which people sometimes don't really, are not really aware of because people think about breast cancer, people think about prostate cancer. And these mm-hmm. cancers have very high, you know, incidence and prevalence rates, but they're not as lethal as some other cancers are. And if you actually sort by, you know, mortality over how many people actually have it, you will see that, for example, asphagia cancer is one of these cancers where, you know, way over 80% of the people that are diagnosed with it, you know, don't live for more than five years, basically, as a result of the diagnosis of the disease. And in some advanced um, stages, even shorter than that, you know, there's, 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 there's survival rates um, or survival um, periods of just up to two or three years. And the clinical, um, the clinical background of my PhD research as well, also really focused on oesophageal cancer. And the big problem with oesophageal cancer is, the only way to really diagnose it these days is you have to get an endoscopy. Like an endoscopy is where a tube with a camera is being shoved down your throat. It's a very uncomfortable procedure for a patient. You have to take an entire day of work as well, you know, because you usually get a bit of a sedative. Ideally, someone has to bring you through a hospital, has pick you, has pick you up from the, has pick you up from there again. And it's just overall a massive barrier. And if you think that you should subject every single person that has a bit of heartburn or a bit of reflux. So, you know, when stomach acid is coming up into your esophagus and it gives this weird feeling in the chest and, you know, sometimes even acidic taste in the mouth. Um, that's just not practical. Like no one's going to do that. Yeah. I mean, it, because it, 99.99% of heartburn is heartburn, even, even more. I mean, exactly. You know. Exactly. But the question is of all of those people that have heartburn, how do you find those people that do not have the symptoms yet that merit an endoscopy, but they're somewhere between, you know, oh, well, I had heartburn for a long period of time now, so what should I do about it? And that's where the Cytosponge comes in, which is the technology which we are commercializing at Cited and basically have used as the first 
proof of concept of what we're actually able to do as a company. And maybe for everyone, you know, feel free to feel free to look this up as well. Afterwards, there's great animation material which we have online. But the cytosponge, in essence, is a pill on a string which contains a sponge that is compressed inside a capsule. A patient that has heartburn for a long period of time where, for example, the, the barrier to endoscopy is a really, really high one. So, you know, you would not send them to an endoscopy. They would be much more willing to actually swallow a capsule, which has a sponge inside attached to a string. That sponge travels to the stomach. In the, in the stomach, the capsule dissolves and the sponge pops open. And then a few minutes afterwards, it's withdrawn by the attached string. And while it's withdrawn, you know, it actually can sample cells from your stomach and from your entire food pipe or esophagus on the way up. And what we can then do in the lab is with a procedure that is a lot more, that is a lot less invasive, actually, we actually can get a lot more information about the health condition of your entire upper GI tract because we collect mm. cells and tissue from, these, from the entire upper GI tract as well. And then we bring them to our lab and then we analyze them for this condition called Barrett's esophagus, which is actually something which is expected to be within two or 3% of the entire population in the Western world. Um, oh. And, and, and if we find Barrett's, that is a known precursor to esophageal cancer. If you, if you have Barrett's very late in your life, that might not be a problem. But if you have Barrett's, you know, in your 40s or 50s, basically, you give your body potentially enough time to develop cancer as a result. And we can interrupt that by catching that early and then also treating it if it has to be treated. So we can actually eradicate that early lesion, which is not cancerous at all. It's, it's, it's actually benign you know from from all we know but we can eradicate that by basically burning it away it's a simple treatment which can then be done endoscopically but it reduces that risk for the patient to progress to advanced cancer to pretty much down down to zero but it also more importantly in the context of covid recovery it enables us to shift demand away from endoscopy from a from a resource intensive secondary care procedure mm -hmm. into an office community-based setting Right. Where you can where you can really triage patients away, you know, from a half an hour, three people in an operating theater um, procedure to a nurse-based procedure, which takes ten minutes, which can be done, you know, even in the back room of a community center if you're desperate for some real estate. Wow, I think that's incredible. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah, I think that that ultimately is is. procedures out of those settings because otherwise well we know you know it's not going to get done i mean all the waiting lists are you know ri ridiculous so yes yes yeah, I, I mean absolutely. and it's and i'm not pointing the finger i mean it is what it is like it's there are lots of reasons why they're, they're they're that long um i was up in edinburgh last week um meeting some um potential or meeting some partners and um they offer ear wax removal in pharmacy yes. um and it turns out that this is their most popular product apart from free covid lateral flow tests um i was like earwax removal he's like yeah because on the nhs at the moment the waiting time for an earwax removal in this part of the world is about 18 months it's like well i mean just for yeah. earwax removal if, if i mean i never had it myself but i know some people that had to have it removed because they couldn't hear very well anymore and they had this like dampened yeah. auditory yeah. Yeah, yeah it, and, it, and, you don't and, want to wait for this for eighteen months either. No, and you know, you, yeah, exactly. So, um, no, I, I completely, I, I completely agree. And so, how, um, how do you see the, um, 
how do how, how does cited interact with healthcare organizations is it specifically around specific diseases or is it more sort of broadly because there's obviously i know that there's an ai sort of technology layer to this as well apart yes, from yes. the kind of yeah. you know innovative diagnostics so how does that sort of come into play so it really comes it really comes to like this interesting paradigm which we've seen over the last few years in healthcare of vertical integration basically is in our case can we like it's not really a question for us it's almost an answer we are the organization that generates very meaningful pathology data on the basis of the cells and tissue we're sampling. Therefore, we are also best placed to interrogate this data because we know the clinical context of how this data was generated, but also how we can use that data to even give more, to give even more meaningful information back to the clinician. So the other component to what we're doing now and what we have started to build out as a platform basically is instead of just, you know, Cytosponge is a great example for what we do, and we're already using that data to build some new algorithms there as well. And I would maybe come to that maybe in this in the in the last part of our yeah, of our session today. Sure. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 interestingly maybe we can we can do this after the commercial break as well. It's really for yeah. us asking the asking the answering our own so what question. You know what comes I, next and how I, do we I think, I think that's a great way to do it. Let's answer your own so what question. Let's do it after the break. We'll be back in two minutes. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Galar Light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hi, welcome back to the final part of today's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and Marcel Gerung, the CEO and founder of Cited. So before the break, we were going through exactly how and what Cited does and, and their mission. Um, and we were just about to touch on to uh, how Cited is leveraging developments in AI and technology and algorithms to, I guess, you know, exponentially increase the value um, and impact of, of what they're doing. So, yeah, Marcel, what, what's the, um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so coming from coming from this very specific application we have with Cytosponge as well, the the question for us is now, you know, we've built laboratory infrastructure and we've built technology teams as well also around machine learning to, to, to maximize how a sample that, for example, of a patient enters our laboratory, how do we get the best possible structure of data out of this as well? I mean, I, you, I know that you're also quite familiar with this, but, you know, to, to everyone else, you know, you would, always, you would almost think that 
medical data or diagnostic data must be incredibly well structured. But interestingly, it's not at all. So in a, in a standard laboratory where, um, where you get a test done, basically, maybe some elements of that data you know, are really well structured and are stored in a really, really smart way. But if you want to connect more than one dot with one another, that's really, really, really difficult. So even if you want to be able to connect a symptom, which you might have recorded with a pathology result, um, that is already, you know, that, that's very, very difficult for a lot of well, organizations. Well, yeah, they, they do. Uh, bizarrely, those things just exist in completely different data sets and fields. Correct. And it's very, very difficult. I mean, sort of, it seems logical. I mean, we went through this with, with COVID and it, yeah, I completely understand. There's yeah. well, the things that people think would make sense don't often make sense and that's often sometimes where things get missed because certain um certain markers only make sense in the context of certain symptoms for example correct and 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 also the fundamental digital infrastructure which the world has built under healthcare is you you know we can say it bluntly is 99 95% based on legacy systems you know it's it's a classic case of we've always done it like this you know no one is going to buy a new system every three years just to be up to date and have all of their have all they of their data stored, they and they can't. can't exactly they can't. So, so what we have started to do, and this is really the opportunity we have been able to create as well by owning also the laboratories in which, um, for example, we conduct our our labor our our laboratory diagnostic testing. We are able to get in control of one of the critical steps, which is basically. For tests like Cytosponge, how do we make sure that we access the data, that's, that's some clinical information of the patient, but most importantly, the diagnostic information and the result itself in the best possible way so that we can interrogate that data and, for example, improve biomarkers, which we already are analyzing on the basis of that sample. So a biomarker means, you know, we're looking for a certain abnormality in a sample in, that we can mm-hmm. measure somehow, which might have an impact on what the diagnosis for a patient is. And, and how can we take that data and, you know, answer, answer a question which we might not even know yet, but how can we then start answering the media? How can we then start asking those meaningful questions as well? And I give you a very specific example of what that looks like. By, by being able, and with Cytosponge, we've done this, we've already started to, you know, improve the risk biomarkers, which we can, which we can apply with Cytosponge as well. So can we give more information to the patient than just saying, you have Barrett's esophagus or not. So you might have to see a clinician in a hospital and, and you know, get some treatment for that as well. We're even working on, on digital biomarkers, which use the cells and the tissue we have collected to try and predict whether um, a patient is more or less likely to develop cancer in the future because a patient that has Barrett's and has a very low risk of developing cancer might have to be, you know, checked again in, in seven to 10 years. They don't have to be checked in one to two years again. Mm-hmm. But because we own the entire pathway for that, we have the data points we can connect and we can ask the right questions, which we can address with algorithms as well, right. where just a, a human is not able to actually activate all well, of that information uh, in uh, their head. And also, you know, the traditional pathology lab is really trying to get through as many tests as possible in, in yes. the shortest period of time. And if you ask them to test for A, they will test for A and they will test for no more than A. And they, that, because that's yes. because that's, they, they, they are set up that way and, they have to deal with millions, if not billions, of samples, you know, annually in the UK, um, and they, that's how they. That, that, they're not, they're, yeah, they're, they are providing a very specific answer to a very specific question, which yeah. is where and you incited is trying to evolve beyond that to the next level. Exactly, it's basically taking, 
it's, it's also taking areas where we have taken commoditization for granted in the past as well and asking what layer can be built on top of that commoditization to yeah. with very limited in investments or improvements, we can make a massive benefit to the patient or to the clinician because what's the objective of every clinician in managing a patient? Well, get as much information together as possible to make the best, the best possible diagnostic or treatment decision. And by, by structuring ourselves around these pathways, we call them managed pathways at Cited as well, we're almost building we're building from the inside out, basically. We're so close with clinical questions in these pathways, which we are which we are working in. And we have now expanded into other pathways beyond just esophageal cancer as well and are doing quite a lot of um, um, new development around how that will look like and, you know, what, what is the next phase of the company to some extent as well. Um, and, and yeah, basically, you know, copy and replicate what we're doing with Cytosponge as well, while at the same time making Cytosponge an even better technology than it already is. So it really becomes this platform of being able to take something that exists or with limited investment, build something new, but directly being able to commercialize it in a, in a clinical market, which we're able to access through our laboratories and then obviously improve through the data we collect as a result of that. I think it makes sense, you know, owning that end to end and owning all of the data opens up these opportunities, whereas previously, you know, the other the alternative is, is that that's going to be very, that would be very, very hard if not impossible for standard pathology labs to do just because they're, they're so entrenched and they have such a huge volume of work to do. You know, it, yeah. it, I'm not, I'm, I just, I, I struggle, I'm not saying it's, it's impossible. I would just say it's probably going to be very challenging for them to be able to sort of take that approach um, from, from the beginning. Um, exactly. And it's, it's for us as well, it's being selective and being strategic. You know, if we want to become a standard laboratory service testing company as well, we would go horizontal instead of vertical in how we in how we and how we think. We would say, you know, let's offer, like you just said, Steve, let's offer test A, B, C, A1, B2, Z, yeah. Y, X as well. But well, we say no, we offer set uh, test G right now. And we know that we are 10 times better than anyone else who can offer test G at the moment because we understand a lot more about what test G means in the real clinical diagnostics world than just selling it as a commodity to someone else. Yeah, and I yeah, and I think that you know the pathology lab pathway is is highly commoditized. If you think about you know even people innovating on it, one could argue you know at home lab test companies, you know, you know the thrivers and things like that. They're really yes. just they're really just they're reselling pathology lab services. And I mean they're just relabeling it and you know marketing it in, in a different way. Um, and let's get let's get checked is different. They actually own their own labs, which is smart. But but fundamentally, it's still using that commoditization, whereas I, you know, I, the only if you're looking at if you're re, if your focus is really on early detection, you know, moving from stage three to four to stage zero, one, two, that requires more data to understand how to diagnose at those early stages. You will not get that data by just getting the same results for stage three and stage four from the pathology lab. You have to do something different. Yeah, I think I think on this early early diagnosis as well. I mean, our our mission is early and faster diagnosis as well. So okay. the fast the faster element here is going into slightly a slightly different end of the clinical application as well. Which is, for example, if a patient has already been diagnosed with a disease um, with an advanced disease, how can we make sure that they get on the best possible treatment pathway as quick as possible? Yeah. Um, well, yes, yeah, speed. Uh, yeah exactly i mean exactly I think it's, 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 yeah it's the perfect time for that type of thing i mean how the, 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 there are so many examples of people at the moment that, that aren't ending up where they should end up within the time frame that they should be getting there 
Yes, totally. And and I think that that speed component, which is is quite relevant for what we are, you know, the things we're working on right now as well, which are, you know, it's always the question of can we can we look at a data driven diagnostic test from a perspective that it either detects disease earlier or detects disease faster as well. And you made an interesting point around the thrivers and and let's get checked off this world as well. We are also looking at a number of applications and home testing as well because we know that vertical integration of what we have, you know having the labs for us for us doing that move and as i said we're looking at a number of technologies there right now as well it's 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 very it's a very clean strategy for us you know we have the building blocks in place already we've scaled from you know from from a one man band which was just me to you know to i think over 60 people now and and basically mm-hmm. growing as we speak you know and definitely going going to a significant significantly higher number this this year as well we've just you know built our second laboratory as well and we we have all of the building blocks. We it's almost like we we actually consider ourselves in some ways as um, as the AWS for pathology. I sort of like well, jokingly yeah. said this in the past as well, but it effectively is exactly what we're building right now. I think that that makes. I think that that's a great way to phrase it. You know, and why wouldn't you know if you're going to do disease G? Why wouldn't you? And, and there's a methodology that someone can self-sample at home. Why not? I mean, that's the, 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 why. Right. Why on earth not? I mean, you know. I don't know whether you can do it with cytosponge, but someone could swallow a pill at home and pull it back up their throat. And I'm sure they're not going to enjoy the latter bit altogether a huge amount if they have to do it themselves, but and they pop it in a sample bag and off it goes. Now, I don't know if, that, if it's that robust or whatever, but as an example, um, yeah, I mean, why, why, why not? I mean, like if, if the ultimately a key part, I believe, and this is what we believe at PocDoc, which is that the closer that you can get to the patient, the easier it is to get patients to think about things earlier on in the, the life cycle. So our, our view is all around, there's a huge barrier to blood testing. So for certain things that, that can be done with a smartphone, you know, certain diseases can be done using our technology, people are going to be much more likely and much more interested in testing themselves. Um, yeah. If you can either go to them in the places that they're spending time, workplaces, pharmacies, you know, um, churches, mosques, wherever it happens to be, or, and ultimately people doing it themselves at home. Um, and, and that takes strain off of the primary care system and the secondary care system, particularly if we're talking about chronic diseases that need ongoing monitoring. And so, yeah, it makes it's the same. It's the same thing. Like you're going to have far more success in in getting more people to diagnose yeah. themselves quicker. That way. It, 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 interestingly, picking up from what you do at Pockdog there as well. You know, if if, if you and I think back, um, what the diagnostic space has looked like five years ago, ten years ago as well, and what COVID sort of like has helped establish as well is. You know, 10 years ago, people were talking about, you know, with Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Holmes of this world, we were thinking about, oh, point of care is going to take over everything, you know. Yeah. Well, what we've now come to realize is, well, there's a very clear coexistence for both of these worlds, you know. Yeah. We will have central laboratory or centralized testing for a number of things, and we would have decentralized testing for other number of things as well. Yeah. And they go very well together, you know. There's, yeah. there's, 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 if we look at, you know, let's get checked, but also some of the other competitors of this space as well. There's a great hybrid world there as well. You know, we are not interested in currently getting, going to the POC space, you know, because it's not our core competence. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but, you know, I, I can see, I can see everyone in this ecosystem, you know, coexisting very well. You know, if you do your, if you do your um, chronic kidney disease screening based on a urine sample at home, you know, and, then if you come for a more thorough checkup and then a pathology sample is being generated, it goes to a central pathology lab, then you have the best of both worlds. You know, 
Yeah. One of them is keep people away from precious healthcare resources, but then make them use them when they need it the most, basically. I completely agree. So in the final few minutes of the show, um, how do you kind of stay focused and on your mission? Slight change of to- topic, but for the last few minutes, because look, you've, you've had explosive growth. You've gone from, you know, one person to 60 people inside of two years, which is phenomenal. Obviously, you've got a heck of a lot going on in different areas. And so how do you kind of get out of bed in the morning and not get overwhelmed by all of this and sort of stay on, on that mission? I mean, it would be, you know, it would be, if you speak to any CEO or co-founder, it would be a bit of a lie that there's not periods of like, feeling a bit overwhelmed by it. You know, we're all we're all humans at the end of the day. Uh, but I think in general, it's it's coming back to the first part of our session today as well. It's, you know, how well, you know, even in more challenging times, how well can you answer your personal so what question? And as a result, also start to answer your personal why question. And usually if the answer to that why question is strong enough, you know, it it will it will keep you it will keep you afloat at almost any at almost any point in time yes there's days where it's more intense and where this is harder to do and then there are days where it's that's easy to do as well but those are the ups and downs i always say about startups when people think about maybe leaving academia and, and going into one or joining one said sure do that you know if you go to a larger company you will have a more robust baseline but the great thing about startups is the highs are higher and the lows are lower so if you're willing <laughs> to go on that journey then yeah, I would agree with you on I would agree with you on that front for sure. Um, and you know, if you had to have any advice for anyone with 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 a kind of entrepreneurial idea or you know in academia or not, what would it be? Just quickly before we end the show, I think the the main thing is if you can get sparring if you can get sparring partners very early on. You know, mentors, very strong, very strong mentors, very strong co-founders, go for it. Like this space, particularly healthcare, is is too complicated to maneuver for a single brain. You know, there's so many things you're missing out on if you're trying to do it all by yourself as well. So getting the right people on board very, very early on and sort of having the right people to bounce ideas of is absolutely, absolutely critical and pivotal. I, again, would completely agree with you. Um, yeah, it's too much for one person. It's just too hard. You've got to, you've got to spread the load. So totally. that brings us to the end of the show. Marcel Gehring, CEO and founder of Sighted. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Really enjoyed it. Was, it really was a great chat and you guys are absolutely crushing it. So it was good to, and um, hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we'll be back with another great guest um, next week. So yeah, thank you very much. Right.